Thank you, Mary Lee. Good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome. My name is David. If you guys are new here, uh, so glad to have you guys join us. Uh, I have the privilege of being the pastor here at Redeemer, and it is a great privilege. I love uh, leading this church, and I love preaching, and that's what I'm going to do. This morning, we are in the third week of a series titled Flip the Script. And if you haven't been here for the first two, that's fine. What this series is about is really recognizing that all of us have like certain patterns of behavior in our lives. We have natural default ways that we react to things. We have certain ways that that we just act, and uh, there are scripts that play out in our lives. And what what we are doing is is recognizing those scripts, and then maybe in some ways recognizing that some of those scripts are behaviors that need to change. Like maybe they're not such good good scripts that are playing out in our lives. And so what what James chapter 1 does, which is actually what we're doing in these weeks during during this flip the script series, we're going through it verse by verse, is is it identifies some of these scripts. It says these are certain things, certain patterns of behavior that that happen in Christians' lives and everybody's lives and it says it, this is how you flip them. These are ways to live more faithfully, to think differently, to, to, to experience more of what God wants us to know and, and the blessed experience of life, that, the gift that we've been given. And so that, that's what we're going we're gonna to do. That's what we've been doing. The first week, we talked about how you can flip trials and understand them as joy. Last week, James McKendry did a great job uh, talking about how temptation gets flipped by remembrance. And uh, this week, I'm going to talk about how doubt in our lives uh, can be flipped by wisdom. Uh, we're going to read James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. And, uh, and if you brought your Bible, that's awesome. You can turn there now. It's actually also a Bible in the chair in front of you. We're going to be in it. Uh, it's also going to be on the screens. But before we read it, why don't we go ahead and bow our heads and pray. Lord Jesus. Uh, we are so thankful for this time to gather, so thankful for so, so many kids, so many lives, uh, Lord, that have been trusted to us as, as a community of faith. And, and Lord, I just pray that as we seek to lead them, we would also let you lead us. I pray that as we open up your word this morning, we, we would see ourselves in it, but we would also see how you lead us and guide us and speak to ourselves. Uh, it, in ways that lead us to life and in ways that would help us find the abundant and, and joy and gifts that you you actually are, are ready to give us, Lord. And I just pray that um, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, God. You are a rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. All right, James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom... You should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. So uh, there is this scene in the original trilogy of Indiana Jones movies, the last movie, The Last Crusade, where Indy is pretty close to uh, 
getting to the Holy Grail. He's just got a couple more things he's got to do. And he steps up into this incredibly deep ravine. Uh, and he's wondering how he's going to cross it. Does anybody remember this from the movie, that, that, that ravine? It's, it's a great scene. Yeah, and so, so he, he gets there. And, and, and he's looking down. And it's just sheer cliff faces. And he says to himself, it's impossible to jump. How am I going to do this? And, and, and he pulls out his little archaeological book that he always does, he always looks at, and, and there's a note in there, and, and he says, it's a leap of faith. Like, the clue to passing this part of, of what happens is he's got to take a leap of faith. And so what he realizes he's got to do is just kind of push aside this doubt about, you know, walking into this cliff and, uh, and dying and, and take a step out. He, he, he needs to do it because his dad is in the background dying and is loud and, uh, and he, he's, he, he, he's just got to psych himself up. And so Indy, with his dad in the background saying, Indy, you, you must believe, son, you must believe, raises up his foot very slowly and then steps down to discover what, if you've seen the movie, the path, right, that was hidden there the whole time. And then uh, with mostly unbuttoned shirt, Indiana Jones crosses to save the day with his sexy archaeological self, right? And, uh, and so that was from Indiana Jones. And, and the reason I'm bringing it up is because when I first read our passage from James this morning, this is actually the kind of thing that came to mind, right? When you read what James says here about doubt, uh, it's really actually kind of confusing because it seems like what he's saying is that doubt is, is bad in, in pretty much any form. It's bad. He says very clearly, when you ask, you should believe and not doubt. And so it's almost like we are supposed to, as Christians, have this belief and we shouldn't allow any room for doubts or questions or concerns to come up. And, and, and instead, like Indiana Jones, like, it's almost like James is saying we should push them away. We should, we should overcome them, and we should, in whatever situation in life, learn to just lift up our foot and step into the ravine, right? And, uh, and I want to say, after studying this passage, although I really uh, kind of got that odd interpretation at the beginning, when you actually look a little closer at what's going on, it's not that at all. Um, there is an entirely different understanding of doubt and what it is and what it does to our lives that James is talking about here. And it really helps uh, to understand that by beginning to see that there are actually different kinds of doubts. There are different kinds of doubts that we experience, and and, and we really need to name them. There's one kind of doubt that I I would say is really nothing more than, than questioning. It's asking earnest, real, honest questions, right? This is when we get, uh, we, we lack information and we're not sure about something, or we get new information and it kind of shakes up our former understandings of things, and then we doubt. And like one of the ways that this might look, for instance, what comes to my mind is the college student who uh, takes World Religions 101, and they grew up in church, but when they get to the unit on Christianity, for the first time in their life, they hear the professor say, did you know that there are hundreds of thousands of discrepancies in the earliest New Testament manuscripts, right? And the, the college student has never heard this before. Maybe you've never heard that before. And what is happening in your mind, in the college student's mind, when you hear that? Well, is the New Testament reliable? It casts doubt 
on what you used to think about the Bible. That, that So the Bible tells me so. This is a trustworthy thing. And that is what Christians believe. But when we get that information, we're suddenly shook up. And, and, and this is a lot of the kind of doubt that we experience in our life. It's simply uh, uncertainty due to a lack of information or the introduction of new in- information. And the way that we deal with that kind of doubt is actually incredibly simple. We get the facts. We get the information that we need. The key question with a lot of informational doubt is, is it true, right? And so if that student was to go out and do a little research, like, like I did when, when a professor did this to me in university, he would discover that there's a lot more to learn here. That actually it is true that there are thousands of discrepancies in the early, earliest manuscripts that we have of the New Testament. However, none of them are, are significant on any level. They, they are totally insignificant things. They are misspelled words. They are typos. They are word order changes. 99.99% of them make no difference at all, and, and, and nothing is at stake when it comes to whether or not we can believe the Bible is true. And actually, the fact that there are multiple uh, there, there are so many discrepancies is, is the result of the fact that we have so much confidence that what we have in the Bible today is what was first written by early Christians. There are so many discrepancies because there are so many early manuscripts of the New Testament. There are literally magnitudes more than any other document we have at the time, and so it's really an embarrassment of riches. We have discrepancies because we have so many documents, and so what it does is it actually gives us more confidence in the, in the, in the earliest text of the New Testament that leads to the Bible that we have now. Information quenches, quells that doubt, right? And, and so that's one kind of doubt. Here's another kind of doubt that I think is, is really important to recognize, because sometimes this doubt can appear to be about the facts, but it's really not. It's actually emotionally driven doubt, and it just kind of hides behind uh, facts that we bring up. Uh, and emotionally driven doubt can come from something as simple as a bad day at work. I bet some of us have experienced this. Like we had a run-in with a coworker that wasn't good, or we failed at something and we're feeling bad about it. And suddenly, this doubt crops up in in our mind. Like, did I really choose the right career path? Right? Am I really in the right job for me? Right? Because we have this emotion going on, suddenly we're starting to to question other things that we were confident in before, in, in really significant forms. Uh, this kind of doubt really can be crippling. We have these emotions that really uh, keep our head from aligning with our heart, and, and we just don't know, we just can't get out from under them. And I would actually suggest to you that until we deal with the emotions, the information is secondary. It doesn't matter what the answers are. We've got to work through the things that are going on in our hearts before we can fully deal with the thing that's happening in our mind, right? That's another kind of doubt, okay? Uh, and what I want to say is that I don't think either of these kinds of doubts is what James is talking about here. Those are two different kinds of doubts. They're not necessarily what James has in mind. Because when you actually open up the Bible and you study those kinds of doubts, Scripture actually presents them in a fairly positive light. Like, asking honest questions, seeking answers, like, the Bible praises those who seek after truth, who deeply desire to know what is true. That's something that the Bible asks us, encourages us to do. When it comes to, like, working through the emotions that come up through the experiences we have in life, like, this is what the entire book of the Psalms is about. These are people who are working through the things happening in their lives as they lead to doubt. And the reality is, and I think a lot of us would affirm this, we grow the most 
when we experience something, some doubt, and then we have to work through it, right? We grow in faith through doubts, sometimes more than any other thing. And, uh, and, and, and this is the key, though, and this is what I think James is really after. We have to work through the doubts. We can't just let them sit there and fester. We can't just let that doubt be there in our lives and kind of get a root and an anchor in, in us. Because when that happens, that doubt starts to control our behavior. It marks the way we think. It marks who we are. And this is what I think James looks at in, in a not positive light. And I want to show you that by really focusing in on one word that he uses to describe this doubt that I think is so key, double-minded. Double-minded. The one who doubts is double-minded, James says. He says, they are unstable in all they do because they are double-minded. He says, because they are double-minded, they are like a, a wave of the sea tossed to and fro. That describes the kind of doubt that results, the kind of behavior that results from a double-minded doubt. And, um, and, and so what is double-mindedness? How, how, how would we understand it? Well, I think it's very simply when we're thinking two things at the same time. Right? We have two different ideas going on in, in our minds, and, and, and at the very root of it, I think, is, is a lack of trust in, in, in one of those things, or, or both of those things, right? We, we lack trust, and uh, I've talked about this before, but I, I think one of the best ways to see that is that there is a really significant difference between believing that something and believing in something. There's a big difference to believe that something and believe in something. I can believe that there's a stock that's going to go gangbusters next year, right? And I can tell people about it. I can really be confident in it. But I'm not truly confident until I believe in it enough to take my life savings and invest in it, right? That's the difference. The difference is that I, I, I might believe it, but I'm willing to trust it. And double-mindedness is a lack of trust. We, we, we might believe something or say we believe something, but our actions betray a different reality, right? And, and, and I want to point out, I think that sometimes in life, double-mindedness isn't a bad thing at all, right? When it comes to, say, your finances, what your financial advisor is going to tell you is you should be double-minded, right? You, you should maybe be quattro or penta-minded. I know I just made those up. Just hang with me. Um, there are, there are good reasons to not put our eggs in any one basket because we don't know what is going to happen, so we should trust uh, in multiple things, right? But, he, but what is good for our finances uh, and double-mindedness is not good in a whole bunch of other places in our lives. And I think the, the place where we see that the clearest is in our relationships, Right? When it comes to our relationships with other people, trust is fundamental. Trust is at the core of every single relationship. And when we express double-mindedness in that relationship, when we say one thing and we do another, we actually undermine that relationship itself altogether. Double-mindedness is, is, is terrible for relationships. And let me illustrate that like this. <clears throat> Imagine there's a couple who uh, have dated for long enough, and, and uh, they sit down and they begin to talk about marriage, right? And, um, and, and the, the guy is in one place, the girl is in another, and she tells him where she's at. 
I want to get married, right? And so the guy listens to this, and he, and he says, honey, okay, I, I really can see us getting married. Um, I want to marry you. I just need more time. I'm not ready yet, right? Anybody, anybody ever thought it, see, seen that reality before? Now, here's what I've seen. A dude can get away with that for a little while, right? He can say, I, I'll marry you, but not, not act on it. But, uh, and, and maybe some dudes get away with it for a lot longer than they should, right? But I think the reality is, uh, if that keeps happening for another six months and a year and two years, and she's made herself clear, and he's saying he wants to do it, but he hasn't done it, uh, there's really only two conclusions that she's going to draw in that situation. One, the dude is straight up lying. He's got things exactly where he wants them. He has no interest in being married. Uh, and and, and that, that's the reality. He's just trying to hold this where it is. Or two, <clears throat> he's, he's doubting. He's doubting himself, her, for whatever reason. He's doubting the future of this relationship. And he really does mean it, that he wants to get married. But something is keeping him from entering into it. Something is, is preventing him. And so he's displaying double-minded behavior. He's undermining trust with her. And what happens in that situation, and what I would tell a lady to do as a pastor, is you need to walk on, right? It's time to move on, and I see some heads nodding, right? <laughs> so here's the point. Uh, like, here's the point I, wa- I want you to make. If that kind of lack of trust undermines our human relationships on a fundamental level, don't, don't you also think that, uh, that double-mindedness would also undermine our relationship with God? If the essence of faith is a relationship with a living God by which we, we learn to love and trust him, and we are behaving in two different ways, saying that we love him but doing another, don't you think that's going to cut to the core of, of, of that relationship that we have with God that's going to keep it from being what it should be? Like, it, a- absolutely. And I think this is why James is so negative on, on doubt in this passage, because he's talking about this kind of doubt that cuts to the core of, of us trusting and believing God. When we doubt our relationship with God, the way that looks in our lives is we look like we're hedging our bets. It looks like we've got split allegiances. We, we are literally doing the opposite of what Jesus said in loving the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul. And the double-minded person says, I'll give you half right? That, that's what is, is happening. And let me just try to put some flesh on this, um, because I, I, I want us to try to, I want, I, I want to recognize it in my own life. I, I bet it's good for us to re- all recognize it when, when it plays out. So, so, so what does this look like? Here's an example. I've got a decision to make. It's a big decision, and, and I know that I need to see God's heart in it. I want to know what God's will for my life is here. And so I'm praying, I'm asking God to guide me, I'm having conversations with faithful friends, and, um, and through that process, I actually think I know what God wants me to do. I think there is a path forward. However, I don't really like it, <laughs> and so I ask three more friends hoping for another answer, and then I do whatever I want to do anyways right? That's double-mindedness. That's what that looks like, right? Here's another one. <clears throat> I've got a, a new boss at work, and 
It's terrible. I'm in, I'm in a nightmare project, and I am under so much stress. And, uh, and what I know that I need to do is, is to go home and to rest and to pray, to lean into to the strength that I can find only in Jesus, to kind of just hang on through this, to, to work this trial into a joy. But what I do instead right? Even though I ask God to help me in this situation, what I do instead is I go home and I eat unhealthy and I neglect my responsibilities and I binge watch Netflix, right? That, that's another form of double-mindedness. Here's another one. I really believe that, that what Jesus said is true, that God will look after me like the birds of the air and the flowers of the field, that there is a true provision that God gives for our lives, However, uh, even though my finances are a mess, I am still unwilling to give God any direction or hand in the way that I deal with my personal finances because I just don't know that I'm going to like how it looks. I don't want to give up that control. That's another one. Here's, here's one more. Uh, I, I desperately want certain parts of my life to get better. I know they need to get, to get better, right? But every time... Uh, a door opens and I can see God making an opportunity for me to do some heart work. I restlessly move on to the next thing. I plan the next house project. I do the next thing with the kids. I binge watch Netflix, right? <laughs> so like that all, those behaviors are double-mindedness. And, and if you saw yourself in there, know that some of that comes from me because that's what I do, right? Like, I think all of us display some of this uh, on, on some level. And, and what I experience, and I bet you do too, when we're aware of it, is it's like there's this civil war going on in our hearts, right? We, we want one thing, but then we're scared, so we go after another, right? We, we ask God to help us trust, and then we end up doing something entirely different when God answers that prayer to, to give us the ability to trust. And, and, and what I see happening is exactly what James describes. In my life, I'm unstable in those places. In your life, you're like a, a, a wave blown and tossed by the sea. You are letting external forces move you to and fro be, because you, you're doubting. You don't have a, a fundamental trust and in the direction that that's God's given you, and we end up falling short of what God wants for our lives, right? And, and so that, that really describes it. But now I want to ask the question, like, how do we not do that, right? How do we flip the script? That's what this is all about. And there are really two things in this scripture that James talks about that come out here that, that I think are really helpful. They're not easy, but I actually think they're really helpful, and they can lead us to experience change. And, and uh, here's the first one. We've got to begin to start thinking right about who God is. We've got to have a right theology. We've got to know that God is good and loves us and wants the best for us. I read a story um, about a younger girl who was adopted into a home. And she had grown up with her mother until she was about six, uh, but her mother was negligent, and she left her and her sister at home and actually for days at a time. And so what these two had learned to do was to, to make do however they could. And so they started leaving the apartment at a very young age. And first they started rummaging through the, through the trash to find something to eat. And then afterwards, they actually became very adept at shoplifting, at stealing, so they could simply have something 
to, to eat every night. And, uh, and after some time, somebody found out about this, and these two girls were taken away. And this younger girl actually ended up getting adopted by, um, by this wonderful family who was ready to provide for her every need. Uh, but the thing that was so interesting about this was that um, she kept stealing. When they were in a store, she would, she would shoplift things. When, when they would go to bed at night, uh, the mother would walk down the stairs and find this girl like in the pantry taking food upstairs to like this one specific place in, in the room. And you guys who uh, have worked uh, with social workers, you guys know why this happens. I think the rest of us can very logically put it together. Why is she doing this? Well, she's got a script that's playing out in her mind. She is, is still in the place before she was adopted, before she was provided for. And she's thinking, I got to survive. I don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. I just got to make ends meet. I'm going to do what I need to do. And, and, and so this, this was the reality. This family was dealing with an old script in a new situation. And, and, and her, her uh, mind was leading her behavior. And I, I really think that's an important the reason I share that story is because it's so important for us to recognize that our behaviors are not primarily the issue. It's, it's what we believe. It's what we think. And be, in order to deal with the behavior, we actually have to deal with what's going on in our minds. We cannot address double-mindedness until we address the script in our mind that's leading us to act in a double-minded way. And this is why I think it's no coincidence that James actually deals with two untruths that really keep us from believing right things about God. Let me read it. Verse 5, he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Two things that I want to pick out there. Firstly, James says, God gives generously. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all. Why, why would he say that? Why, why would he need to, to, to talk about the generosity of God? It's be, because people were believing the other, the other thing is true, that God isn't generous, that God is uh, stingy and mean, that there isn't enough resources, that God isn't a God of abundance who is ready to open up the storehouses if we would learn to trust in him. And, uh, and I think that this is a reality that a lot of us live with. When you think about why you behave in a certain way, uh, I would bet that sometimes it, it, it's because you don't believe that God is truly generous, that he is actually going to provide for you, that he's actually going to take care of things. I think this is a script that a lot of us deal with. And, uh, and, and, and it's just one of the things that James points out to people who, by the way, had a lot less than we did right? He's, he's saying you need to trust and know that God is generous. And they were dealing with a much harder reality than we were, right? And, and, and so this is the first thing that, that he identifies. He's, he's saying, no, that's not true. God is not stingy. God is not mean. There is plenty to go around. If you trust in God, he is good. He's going to take care of you, right? That, that's, that's the first thing he wants us to know. Here's the second thing. James says God gives without finding fault. He gives generously to all without finding fault. I think this is one of the biggest hang-ups that we can deal with in our relationship with God, right? On one level, we know that, like, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. But then on another level, we struggle to believe that we've actually been forgiven, 
right? That, that, that Jesus did that for you, that he loves you that much, that while we were still sinners, Jesus died on the cross. And so what we do is we are timid in our relationship with God because we are worried that God's going to be finding fault with us. That, that it, and maybe it's a thing where the moment we mess up, uh, and this is a very normal human behavior. I think sometimes we're scared to then go on back and ask for forgiveness. But this is what James is trying to say. You don't ever have to not go to God. You don't ever have to, um, have to feel like because you messed up, God isn't immediately ready for you to turn and run home like the prodigal son, right? Uh, what he's trying to do is help us realize that, that even though we have faults, God is not fault-finding. He is always ready for us to turn and repent and and believe and he will answer our prayers even when we got messed up things in our lives but it's a particular prayer and it's it's a prayer this is the other thing i want you to see it's a very particular prayer it's one thing i think the first thing is to know right things about god but the second thing is actually then in knowing right things to to do right things to actually believe it enough to act on it. And this is the next thing I really want to bring out. Uh, Verse 5 again, James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God. Now, I read this verse for like three weeks and didn't see this, but the word that James uses there is wisdom. If you, what are you asking for? Wisdom. What is the thing that that God is, is ready to give us? wisdom, right? You know what I did actually, and I bet a lot of you guys did too, I filled that in with another word. It was answers. If any of you wants an answer, you should ask God. Because when, when we're in a bad situation, uh, that's typically what we want. We just want to know what to do. We, we, we want to know what the right answer is. We have, that's what you do with informational doubt, right? You just get the right answer, but that's not what's going on here. That's not what he's referring to. He's saying what you need in your life, if you're double-minded, is wisdom. This is what God's ready to give you. And the difference between an answer and wisdom is so key because an answer is what you get in the classroom, Right? Wisdom is what happens when you go out into the workplace and you fail a number of times and you finally understand what you learned in, those, in that classroom uh, a number of years ago, right? W- wisdom is the sifted, experienced learnings. And this is actually how the Bible talks about wisdom, of those who have been there but have now learned better and, and very specifically actually have learned to trust God, right? It, 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 it's, wisdom is, is the gift of, of having an experienced answer that is now learned to trust and find a different way. And, and uh, I, I just think that is so significant because what I think then we are being told by James is that if we want to flip this script, we're not asking God to just give us an answer. We're actually asking God to give us an opportunity to do something different. We are praying for God to show us a better way to give us an invitation to do something different than we've done before, right? And, and let me just illustrate that like this. That girl who was adopted and was, was stealing, I love the end of this story. You know how the mother uh, stopped that behavior in, in her daughter? She one day took her to the cupboards and opened them up and said, look, look at everything that's in here. There is food for weeks. There's food for months. There is everything you need and more. And when all this is gone, 
we'll go to the grocery store and, and we'll buy more. And then she took her to the refrigerator and she opened it up and she said, look, so many of your favorite foods are in here. You can come here whenever you like and get whatever you need. And when it's gone, guess what? We'll go to the grocery store and then buy more. And then, then you know what she did? She went up to her room where she was like hiding the food that she was storing away and she put more there. She gave her more and she said, look, there is food here. If you need any, take whatever you want and when this is down, when, when there's not any more here, we'll give you more. You are going to be provided for. She showed her uh, that, that what she was saying was true and over time, this little girl learned to, to stop stealing. She flipped the script in her mind. She started to understand that through experience that, that she was going to be provided for. And I, I just want to leave you all with this. I, I think <laughs> this is such a, an interesting thing that, that James does here. But, but, but I, I think that the answers to, to the double-mindedness in our lives and the doubt that's at the root of them is actually just doing something different. It's to say, God, give me an opportunity to trust you and then following through on it, right? If you want to trust God more, th th then ask for wisdom, just like James says, and then act on the opportunity that comes in front of you. And that's how we flip the script on double-mindedness in our lives. We learn over time, we're shown over time that God is good, that he can be trusted, that the doubt is flipped by the wisdom of God. Amen. Let's pray. God, I thank you for today. I thank you for your word, which is thick and dense and challenging and plain and yet so hard on some levels to live, Lord. And I pray that as we can kind of see ourselves in this, that, that you, you would, Lord, I know that you'll answer our prayer to, to find wisdom. And when you, when you give us those opportunities, would your spirit bother us and move us and, and, and just get us to the point where we're willing to take that step to, to trust and build trust and find in you a provider and a keeper of our hearts and minds um, that can unite who we are at our very core in our relationship with you, Jesus. And it's in, it's in his name that we pray. Amen.